Welcome to the House of Horrors podcast, where each week we dissect problems real estate investors have faced, how they navigated it, and of course, what you can do to avoid ending up in their shoes. Hey there, it's your host, Bonnie, and every now and then I come across a wild real estate story that I just have to share with you all. And a few weeks ago, I was Instagram scrolling, and I saw on this meme account that I should probably unfollow, (laughs) but I saw this story about a woman who was trying to get out of her contract for a $19 million penthouse in Tribeca. And now before you run away thinking that this is a problem for another tax bracket, this is actually a situation I've seen happen really often in my professional career. And yeah, the numbers may have a few extra zeros tacked on, but if you've ever flipped or if you ever just sold a property or you may sell a property, you're going to want to stick around because we are going to be talking about a few of my favorite things. First, we're going to talking about real estate agent responsibilities, whether you are an agent or you work with an agent, kind of like where's the line when we're pointing fingers when things go wrong uh, during a sale. Also, what constitutes a fraudulent representation? Where is, you know, the line being drawn when the buyer thinks that you aren't being forthcoming or truthful about some sort of condition with the property? And then we're also going to chat about how asset protection structures, yes, my favorite thing, come into play in mid-transaction types of lawsuits like this one. But before we dive in, I want to invite you to my free on-demand legal workshop where I break down three legal myths real estate investors cannot afford to follow, and of course, what to do instead. I've seen these myths promoted in Facebook groups, bigger pockets forums, and at networking events, and they may seem innocent enough or even like good advice, but I've seen all of them <laughs> blow up in investors' faces, and that I don't want to be you, my friend. And since I'm no longer in the business of cleaning up investors' legal messes for high retainers, I am going to break down and share with you my best tips to avoid these expensive legal mistakes. And of course, some easy steps you can do instead to protect yourself. You can pick a time to watch it at your convenience at bonniegallum.com forward slash workshop. And I'll include that link in the show notes. Now let's dive in to this ongoing multi-million dollar lawsuit. I often hear from investors that they want to put off tackling the legal stuff until they are bigger. And one of the many problems with that approach is that once you're big, you've got bigger problems. But thankfully, a lot of those bigger problems can actually be prevented by using the same offensive asset protection tools that I teach about when you only have, you know, just one or two properties, whether they're worth $50,000 or $500,000 or $5 million. But the reality is, unfortunately, that sometimes lawsuits aren't completely avoidable. And from the buyer's perspective, this situation that we're going to talk about in this episode was not avoidable for them. Um, But what if you're selling a property? How do you avoid, you know, stepping in it like this seller did? And so let's talk about it. This is actually an ongoing lawsuit in the state of New York involving a property located at 37 Warren Street in Tribeca, uh, New York City, which if you've watched, you know, one episode of Million Dollar Listing, you know that that's like a really expensive area of New York City, like if not one of the most expensive areas. And so this was a situation where the buyer is now saying that her real estate broker and the seller lied to her about the existence, the presence of a full-time doorman. And so This was a building that it turns out actually only has a part-time doorman. And so the actual like human doorman would be there on weekdays, but then there would only be this like virtual digital 
doorman attendant type of program on the weekends. And so this lawsuit is a breach of contract, which names the Cochrane Group um, and one of its real estate agents specifically. And the seller, which is this company called Zoel LLC. And the crux of this um, lawsuit is essentially that she felt defrauded that, you know, this place was advertised as basically just having, quote, a doorman. Um, And since it doesn't have a doorman full time, which if anyone has lived in New York City or any major city, like doorman are like a really big deal. Um, And so she felt that that was, you know, crucial to her decision making in purchasing this property, but also that she felt unsafe that this buyer who is, I'll say, in a trust, so we don't know the buyer's name. Um, the lawsuit was brought uh, in the name of the CPA of this woman. But she's saying, you know, I'm a single mom. I felt unsafe. And, you know, I wanted a full-time doorman type of building. But this is where things get a little bit wonky. And so the ad that the Cochrane Group ran said that, you know, it has a doorman. And the listing, you know, describes having a doorman. Um, the problem being, like we said, is that on the weekends, doorman's not there. We've got this um, digital type of system. And right now she's fighting for her escrow. So we've got $1.9 million in escrow right now. Um, so it's about a 10% deposit we've got for this $20 million property. I don't know if I mentioned the price of it before, but it is listed for a whopping $19.995 million. And But what I was saying is that things started getting funky when she starts to see the property. And she doesn't realize this in the moment, but it's alleged that every time she would go to see the property, it would only be during times when the physical doorman was there. So number one, she always saw the doorman. She wasn't seeing the property on weekends when it would only be this digital situation. But then also two, which is where things look really bad for the realtor here, is that she alleged that the broker would actually stand in front of like this virtual doorman screen that was located in the lobby to hide that it was there. (laughs) And she was saying that, you know, why would the broker always be standing in front of it unless she was trying to prevent me from asking questions about this like digital screen in the lobby? Like if she saw it, that she would start asking questions and say like, why would we need a digital doorman if we have a physical doorman? And then she would realize that she didn't actually want this property and the deal would fall apart. Now, I actually went and checked out the listing for this because how could I not? Um, And the language in there, I'm going to read it to you, I thought was quite interesting and brings up like a little bit of a legal conundrum, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it says, you know, this property is a mix of old and new. 37 Warren Street was originally constructed in 1931 and crowned with glass and copper browns facade in 2013. This boutique condo building is home to just 17 residents and offers a doorman, private storage, fitness room, common roof deck, and cold storage for deliveries. Now, you may be saying like, well, they do offer a doorman. They just don't offer a 24-7 doorman, which undoubtedly will be the seller's argument in this lawsuit. Um, They will also probably be pointing the finger at the, you know, the agent saying, why did you write the copy like this? Um, Because it's vague. It's vague. And the, um, you know, the other thing to think about, like who exactly this seller is? Like, who is Zoel LLC? Because if Zoel LLC is maybe like some other like celebrity who owns this property and is like reselling it, then 
they probably didn't feed a lot of language to the agent for them to create their listing. Now, on the other hand, when you've got, you know, I'll say like flippers, developers, people who are like rehabbing properties and then putting them on the market, they're usually feeding a lot of language to their agents about like, hey, here's the features of the property. And maybe they even gave, you know, some sort of written material, whether it was an email or a brochure or some sort of digital type of situation explaining like the perks of this property. And if they, you know, for example, say this Zoel LLC was the developer of this building and, you know, turned over some sort of ebook or brochure or something about the property to the agent and that just said doorman and then the agent just typed in doorman into LL into uh, not LLC into MLS then we're end up in the situation of, yeah, we're pointing fingers at each other. But I think it is super, super interesting. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, where is that finger getting pointed? And, you know, the buyer doesn't really care. <laughs> the buyer's suing everybody. She's suing the agent. She's suing the seller. And, you know, from the buyer's point of view, it's like, let them figure it out. Let them fight it out amongst each other of like, who's really responsible here for this m- misrepresentation. I mean, from the buyer's point of view, it's definitely, you know, perceived as fraud, misrepresentation. She doesn't want to buy this property. You know, it's something that's really, really crucial when you're buying New York real estate. And maybe from the seller's point of view, it was a miscommunication or the buyer wasn't doing their due diligence properly. Like, how did you not know this? Um, but we're not going to get into like the weeds of this lawsuit because frankly, it's just very new right now. There's not a whole lot on it. Um, but the... Um, the fight is going to be guided a little bit by like the facts, like who told who what, who told, you know, who to put this language in there. But most states also have laws outlining like a real estate agent's responsibilities and their duties. And oftentimes that gap of where their duties stop is filled in by the seller. Um, and that can be risky for sellers. Um, but even more concerning than that is that in many states, a realtor can just rely on statements by the seller without having to conduct any further due diligence. And so if you think that leads to some sloppy listings, not just in the $19 million you know, listing section of Zillow, but across the board, then you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, for buyers, what do you need to do here? You need to be doing due diligence on just about everything. <laughs> do I want you to take out your tape measure and start measuring um, you know, the square footage of the building? Not necessarily, but you may have noticed, and I've seen this increasing a lot, is that square footage is not included a lot of time in listing. Uh, descriptions. And that's because you don't want to be caught uh, with some sort of fraud in the event that there's, you know, some sort of discrepancy, whether it's, you know, 100 square feet or 1000 square feet or something even more than that. Um, But for sellers, that means if you're not sure about something, don't guess. (laughs) Please, God, just don't guess. Tell your realtor to figure it out, to look it up. And this is really especially true when it comes to things like zoning, to tax assessments, to neighborhood type of conditions. Don't just make it up. Don't use your best guess. Um, We're not talking about, you know, maybe the HVAC is 15 or 16 years old, in which case I would just say it's around 15 (laughs) years old. Um, But we're talking about things where there is some, you know, true or falseness to them. (laughs) Zoning is, you know, adequate for this use, true or false. Um, The property is not undergoing a tax reassessment, true or false. There is not a pending condo adjustment, true or false. Like those types of things, if you don't know them, 
Do not guess. Do not guess. <laughs> and that being said, like, you can't lie either, guys. Like, of course, um, this shouldn't be a shocker. But unfortunately, I've been proven wrong many, many times um, because I can't tell you how often I ha- would have clients contact my law firm, hire me, and then, like, purge all of the things that their agent told them to say or to do or to not mention to buyers or not include in the listing. And good God, I just, I cringe even thinking about it. But if you know something is off, just disclose it. Like not only is that the law in most instances, um, like there's like some gray area around like if a house is haunted and maybe we'll, we'll do an episode for that. Maybe I'll, you know, shuffle some things around around Halloween and we'll do haunted house uh, legal stories. But you're going to want to follow the law to a T when it comes around disclosures when you're selling a property. Um, on top of the fact that it's a seller's market. So like for Pete's sake, most buyers aren't going to care right now. But let me tell you, they will care if they find out after closing and they're stuck with like some surprise bill or some surprise headache that they don't think they signed up for. Um, but, you know, where do we draw the line when it comes to fraudulent misrepresentation? You know, is a digital doorman like the situation here really all that different from a real one? Um, not according to the seller in this situation. You know, they think that, you know, doorman is encapsulating and they do provide a doorman and this is good enough. However, a weekend digital doorman apparently is not enough for the buyer. And they really f- feel, you know, per their filings that, the property is not safe, that they would have never purchased it, and that this really is a material type of defect that they wouldn't have purchased the property had they known. And, you know, when you add on top, you know, the Cochrane Group's actions of strategically apparently showing the property at certain times when there was always that physical doorman, or standing in front of this digital screen so that way the buyer wouldn't notice it. Well, then it starts to smell a little bit stinky, right? It starts to smell a bit fishy, like something is maybe actually up here and they were trying to pull a quick one on the buyer. And, you know, in my opinion, there's this argument from the seller's attorney that this lawsuit is, you know, essentially it's splitting hairs. But to me, that feels a little bit disingenuous. And I think that's actually a really important strategic legal point to talk about. I mean, I don't think blowing hot air up someone's, you know what, is a good negotiating strategy. And making the other party, you know, more upset by invalidating their feelings or totally dismissing it isn't going to win you, you know, any points. It's not going to get you any closer to a settlement, which is... I think if there's any amount of wrongdoing, which it seems like where this situation is going, like you you don't want to be off to the wrong foot where you're, you know, just coming off flippant or overly aggressive. Like it doesn't look good if you actually did something and then you have to start backtracking. <laughs> that like plaintiffs and lawyers smell blood in the water and they will attack <laughs> in those types of situations. Um And, you know, there's just a difference between totally denying the legalities of a claim and denying the perception of facts. And I'll give you an example of kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, And some of this just comes down to, like, good legal writing and good lawyering. But this is, like, a a quick off-the-cuff, like, how I would respond in this type of situation, which is something, like, along the lines of, like, we can understand the buyer's surprise, perhaps even disappointment, in discovering that the physical doorman is only present some days of the week. However, we, you know, deny any wrongdoing here because the buyer had access to conduct due diligence and discover, you know, all of the conditions of the property and not just the doorman. Like something along those lines where it's like, hey, we get that, you know, there's a disconnect between how we thought we were selling the property and how you perceived buying the property, but it's not our fault. And, you know, whenever possible, I don't know if the buyer, you know, did an inspection here or, you know, 
what, ask you know certain types of questions. I think a lot of that's still forthcoming and for us to figure out how it happened. But if you can kind of just like shift the blame a little bit away or just deny the responsibility without denying the damage in a sense, I, I think you can, uh, you know, do that. And I think that that doesn't, you know, put people in this position where they're digging their heels in and it makes the lawsuit longer and more expensive. Um, and that's just not good for anybody. It's not good for anybody. And, you know, I think it's really important, not just with lawsuits, but everything as a real estate investor, whether it's, you know, dealing with tenants, dealing with contractors, dealing with your partners, to be both empathetic and firm. And that's an approach that I've, you know, taken with me through my law firm um, and also, you know, through my investing business where it's possible to have empathy to come from a place of like genuinely caring that this person has been hurt or is disappointed or, you know, same thing with tenants. You know, sometimes those types of situations pop up, but it's okay to still also be firm in your position as well. Let me tell you, it isn't an art, but I think it's a really important one to try to craft and to consider, especially when responding to a lawsuit or trying to negotiate a settlement or just, you know, a position where, you know, anyone comes out guns blazing, (laughs) asking for, you know, the world and you need to, you know, figure out the best way to kind of play chess, play chess in these situations. And that doesn't mean, I, I don't mean in the sense of like playing games with someone, but think about the long run, think about the long run even when you're making just your first move. Now, you know, mid-transaction lawsuits in general are, I think, an undervalued legal risk. I think it's too often, just frankly, not even on the radar for real estate investors. But the reality is is that you can't just assume that if you want to get out of a deal that you can. Um, And I say that even with contingencies in mind, with contingencies in place, because people view them differently. I I will say I've seen sellers reject mortgage denials. I've seen as-is clauses blow up in buyers' faces or surprise sellers um, when they thought they were locking buyers into things that they can't. Um, And let me tell you, I have seen some closing date delays cause extraordinary costs and closing day disasters that I would frankly never prefer to speak of again. (laughs) But one, you know, one of the problems with lawsuits that pop up mid-transaction, meaning from like somewhere where you sign the contract until the date of closing, is that they are almost never situations covered by insurance. Even close closing issues, I'll I'll add, are almost never covered by (laughs) insurance. And so that means both sides are ponying up for their legal costs and like whatever the settlement ends up being. Like that is going to be an out-of-pocket cost. And, you know, with this penthouse situation, you've got, you know, entitied up people. I'll put it that way. You've got a corporate brokerage. You've got a buyer who's in a trust. You've got a seller who's in an LLC. And, you know, they've probably paid a lot of money for a lot of those entities. But let me tell you, none of them are going to do anything to protect the parties here. (laughs) None of them will. Um, And in theory, if there was some sort of resolution to this lawsuit in greater value than the assets contained by like this seller's LLC, this Zoel LLC, um, which I might add, you know, as, as a side note here, that I think it's totally possible that, you know, in a fraud situation like this, I'm not familiar with the, you know, this exact fraud statutes up in New York, but oftentimes these, you know, fraud cases end up having 
additional penalties where it's like whatever the damage is times two or times three. And it's, you know, way more than whatever just like a straight monetary loss would be, which is, I think, how most people view mostly contract disputes. It's like, oh, well, they owe me $10,000. So the worst case is $10,000. Well, for example, here in New Jersey, like, oh, $10,000 of fraud uh, in the real estate context, like this is actually going to cost you $30,000. And so things get real expensive real fast once you, you know, start alleging fraud as it is here. And, you know, perhaps the LLC could uh, cap damages in some way, but fraud is just, it's a tricky, tricky beast. Fraud is also just not considered a normal business practice. And because of that, it's not an action protected by an LLC. So maybe there's some additional, you know, contract type of claims where that LLC could cap damages, but when it comes to just a fraud claim, which I'll say is the most expensive claim um, that I could imagine being brought here, is is not going to be protected or contained by an LLC in any way. So yeah, <laughs> in this situation, I think everything is on the table for this seller. Um, and now you might be wondering, like, why doesn't the seller just like cut their losses, return this $1.9 million that's an escrow? And I think some of that probably has to do with just supply and demand. Like there aren't a ton of people in the market for a $19 million penthouse, even one that's in Tribeca in New York City. And perhaps not one, you know, especially that only has a digital doorman, guys. Right? Uh, the seller may realize that the price they've currently got this buyer in is like leaps and bounds better than what they will get for any future buyer. And especially after this, you know, lawsuit which got national attention and some national press. And so it may be worth trying to figure out or trying to settle in some way with this buyer while they still kind of got them by the the reins with their, you know, 2 million dollars in escrow. And so this situation is a multi-million dollar mess, but it's actually a really common type of real estate lawsuit. And so I want you to learn from it, even if your escrow only has three zeros and not six or seven zeros involved. Um, You know, first off, it's important to trust your realtor, but as a seller, you got to look out for number one. (laughs) You got to look out for yourself when, you know, you're listing a property. And I think the approach to trust but verify is really crucial to avoid getting named in a lawsuit or being able to actually defend yourself in a lawsuit due to something that your agent said, even if they said it on your behalf. Um, I there's a difference between saying something on your behalf and at your direction. Um, And that means, you know, reviewing listing copy that will go up onto MLS or will be used in promotional materials, whether it's in print or digital, like social media graphics, different types of copy, email blasts, things like that. You want to be really clear about what is accurate. And that includes getting really specific. You know, brevity or vagueness can be great, you know, when it comes to Twitter, but it can leave room for interpretation when it comes to the legal stuff. You know, here the seller may have genuinely thought that digital doorman is equivalent to doorman and equivalent to a human one. And so there did not need to be any sort of distinction. But the buyer definitely didn't think so. And my opinion is probably most New York City residents wouldn't equate the two either. And so you don't want to just use the word doorman and assume that everything is fine. I would have probably here disclosed that, you know, there's a full-time doorman five days a week and, you know, some sort of virtual version of one on the weekends. And, you know, you definitely don't want to assume that just because you're flipping in an LLC that you've got a cap on your legal exposure. It's just not the reality, especially when you're talking about transaction type of lawsuits. Not only will LLCs not cover you in a claim for fraud, but your insurance won't either, um, especially if the lawsuit gets to judgment. 
But, you know, taking the judgment or settlement, which would come out of pocket aside, you're paying for your lawyers too here, guys. I mean, a lot of times I love, 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 and I always recommend, you know, layering up on insurance, but insurance doesn't cover everything. And so in all likelihood, this was a situation where there's no insurance coverage for this and no insurance coverage means no insurance lawyers either. And so those legal costs really add up no matter if you're suing over $1.9 million or $19 million or $10,000, guys. Um, It gets really expensive really fast. So I hope you learned a lot from this episode. I, I always love when I can take something that is like fantastical in the news and like boil it down to something that is relatable for us, I'll say small-time investors. And so if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy the House of Howers podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and leave me a five-star review. Every month, I select a listener who leaves a review and gift them a $20 Home Depot gift card. All you need to do to win is leave me a review, screenshot it, and DM me on Instagram at BonnieGallumESQ so I know it's you behind the review. Stick around for next week for a conversation about texting your tenants. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to the House of Horrors podcast. Make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out all of our podcast episodes, show notes, links, and more at bonniegallum.com forward slash podcast. You can learn more about legally protecting your portfolio and take my free legal workshop, The Three Legal Myths, Preventing You from Securing and Scaling Your Portfolio, and of course, what to do instead at bonniegallum.com. And to stay connected and follow along, follow me on Instagram at bonniegallumesq and send me a DM to say hi. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.